the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 17. De-risking China. Is America's 50-year love affair with investing in China over? Talking with Jeremy Mark, Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Is the bloom off the rose? Are America and Europe stepping back from China's economic juggernaut? And is de-risking the same as decoupling? Or is it all an attempt to contain the growth of China as some critics in Beijing see it? Jeremy Mark joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. Hi, Jeremy, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, please take a few minutes and tell us about yourself. Well, Jim, I'm going to date myself here. I got involved in China 50 years ago or more when Richard Nixon went to China and sort of opened a whole new chapter in U.S.-China relations. It's a bit hard to imagine, if you weren't there, the impact that that had at the time. China had been completely closed to the West, completely closed to the United States, and suddenly here was an American president in Beijing meeting with Mao Zedong, with Zhou Enlai, and it really had a, an earthquake-like impact mm-hmm. for many people in this country. What that meant for me was, uh, beyond the immediate excitement, was I went off to college the next year and started studying Chinese, started studying China, Hmm. and sort of my whole career took off from that point. I did a lot of different things for a while, but about the early 80s, I ended up at the Asian Wall Street Journal, which doesn't exist anymore. It was created by and eventually subsumed by the Wall Street Journal. But at the time, it had its own bureaus around Asia and in New York. And over a 15-year period, I worked as a reporter and editor in New York, Tokyo, Taipei, and Singapore, Mm. and traveled in the region, and including a period of time in China after Tiananmen, after things quieted down. In the late 90s, it was time for a, a change. And at that time, the world was sort of focused on the Asian financial crisis, which had seemed to completely upset the apple cart of the Asian miracle, particularly in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. As a result of that crisis and coverage I was involved with, I was given a chance to go to join the International Monetary Fund in Washington, where I went for essentially in the next two decades and got involved in a lot of different issues. The development of the IMF's relationship with China and the the rapid expansion of the Chinese economy, the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, did a lot of work in Africa after that, and ended up as a a senior speechwriter for the IMF management team Mm -hmm. until I retired about six months before the pandemic in uh, 2019. My plan with my wife was to travel the world and do other things. And instead, of course, like everybody else, we ended up at home for a period of a year or more. So I actually went back to my writing at that point and was invited to become a senior fellow at the Geoeconomic Center of the Atlantic Council. And Geoeconomics essentially 
being the studies that that combine diplomacy, economics, financial markets, and politics, and started doing what I had done as a journalist, leavened by the experiences I had over 20-odd years at the IMF, and with very much a focus on China, China's economy, U.S.-China economic relations, China's financial markets, supply chain issues, semiconductors, and a fair amount of time on Taiwan as well, where I've lived for about five years of Mm. my life. Mm. Fascinating background, and all of that background and that experience is going to inform our conversation. Like you, I remember President Nixon stepping off Air Force One in February 1972 on a very cold day in Peking, China, as it was known then. And up until that time, America had not recognized the People's Republic of China since its founding in 1949. But through the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, all of that changed especially as regards U.S. investment. American multinationals flocked to China, dazzled at the prospect of a new untapped market of 1.6 billion potential customers. It was all so promising. So what happened, Jeremy? Well, Jim, you, you could spend the next two hours talking about this. I think what happened was that a lot of it turned out to be exactly what people hoped, in the sense that China went from being a very, very poor country to a $17 trillion economy, the leading export manufacturer in the world, and increasingly a country with advanced technology and extraordinary amounts of wealth. And American companies, foreign companies, Japanese, Korean, French, German in particular, all have done very well in China. There was a point as the pandemic hit that a lot of American multinationals were basically taking like 40% of their profits from China. Mm. But what has happened is that there were tensions that existed really from the beginning, political tensions, certainly tensions uh, that revolved around the difference in the two countries' political systems, increasingly tensions that involved uh, military to military interactions, Mm some in the skies off of China, some in the high seas around China. There were constant tensions over what sort of investments were allowed, what sort of technology was being transferred to the degree to which companies were able to access markets that they were, they were trying to access. Later, there were issues about the valuation of the Chinese currency, the renminbi, the U.S. increasingly felt from the early 2000s onward, that the currency was undervalued and China was taking advantage of that to export at the expense of U.S. companies. But I think there were two events that really began to change things. One was the 2001 accession of China to the WTO, Mm -hmm. which really opened up markets to its exports. The flood of exports out of China had a very significant impact in countries like the United States and contributed, for example, to the real decimation of many industries in this country. And I think that that transformed in a very very visceral way the image that the average American had of China. And it was a a negative change, which Mm -hmm. I think contributed to the tensions that subsequently have emerged. The other event was the 2008-09 global financial crisis in which 
you know, like shall we say the U.S. financial system was shown to have feet of clay. Mm -hmm. It was a severe crisis that took, you know, several years to recover from. Meanwhile, China became the engine of growth for the global economy. It put vast amounts of money into stimulating its own economy, which, which in essence helped them to offset the impact of the recession that occurred globally. It also created demand for goods and natural resources from other parts of the world. And China became rich as a result. It also created all kinds of problems for itself that have come home to roost in recent years, overinvestment in real estate, overinvestment in infrastructure, a whole range of problems. But all of that, in essence, created more and more tensions between Washington and Beijing that really started to come to a head later in the Obama years, particularly during the Trump administration mm -hmm. with the imposition of tariffs and then the increased focus on technology trade, which I know you're going to want to get into here. Mm -hmm. But essentially, real concerns that China was using U.S. technology to develop advanced military capabilities. And there was a sense that this would have to be addressed. I agree with your analysis there. One of the major events, I guess, during that same time frame, though, was the accession of uh, Xi Jinping as president of China. It seems to me as a layman, obviously you're more familiar with uh, Chinese politics and the Chinese economy than I am, but it seems to me that his accession to the presidency in China represented a more of a hardline authoritarian approach, at least viewed from an American perspective, than his predecessors. It's not to say that his predecessors were, were liberal Democrats, far from it. We have to remember that the Chinese Communist Party, it's a one-party state. It's a one-party rule. And the predecessors of Xi, of course, were also senior communists. But it seems as though this particular incumbent, Xi, has been trying to restore some of that communist orthodoxy. Is that a fair assessment? What, what, what do you think about that, Jeremy? I think it's a very accurate assessment, Jim. I mean, there were obviously here, too, a lot of things were going on. China has always been an authoritarian country under the communists. It's been at times totalitarian, certainly under Mao through the Cultural Revolution. There was a tremendous loosening that took place within limits from the late 70s, early 80s onward. There was a tightening after the Tiananmen uprising in 1989, which had a deep impact on the world, on U.S. policy, and on the Chinese people. But, you know, into the, the aughts, as we say, after the year 2000, there was a considerable opening. But this was accompanied by, by the growth of, of real severe corruption mm -hmm. among the, the party, uh, the military and other parts of, of the government. And I think this was accompanied by a growing concern within elements of the party, which Xi Jinping came to represent, that China was threatened by all of the opening to the West, by the, the, the new ideas that were spreading, and by corruption. China was deeply aware of what had caused the fall of the Soviet Union. It saw 
Arab Spring in 2011, mm-hmm. saw the the risings in Kiev against corrupt Soviet-oriented leaders, and there was deep concern about color revolution in China. Xi Jinping, I think, sort of used all of this to consolidate his own power, and the end result we're seeing has been a turn towards much harsher authoritarianism, a closing off of avenues for information, particularly through the internet, a crackdown on civil society, and at the same time, a hardening of foreign policy. Under him, we saw the building of artificial islands in the South China Sea and a very aggressive posture towards the China's neighbors on these seas, the confrontation with Japan over the Senkaku Islands, which China calls the Diaoyutai in the East China Sea, increasing anger at the U.S. for the surveillance that U.S. planes and naval vessels conduct in, in international airspace and waters around China. And all of these things came to a head first gradually and then quite significantly after she came to power in 2012. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has only gotten more severe in recent years. The harsh zero COVID policies are one example of how much worse it's gotten. The crackdown on very successful and wealthy e-commerce and internet platform companies has taken the wind out of the sails of China's private sector in the last few years. And all of this seems to be because the priority has become consolidating the power and the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's been accompanied by significant paranoia as well. Let's come back to the economic relationship between China and the United States. The U.S. imported $530 billion worth of goods from China in 2022. So there's a, and of course, there's a huge trade imbalance there between China and the United States. Later this week, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen will be going to Beijing. Of course, two weeks ago, we had Secretary of State Antony Blinken who was in China, met briefly with Xi Jinping on his trip. And very interestingly, in addition to these high-level administration members going to China to talk about policy, at the same time, we're seeing pictures of Xi Jinping meeting with captains of American industry. For instance, Bill Gates, the founder and former chairman of Microsoft. Jamie Dimon, the chairman of the board of J.P. Morgan. Elon Musk, the chairman of uh, Tesla. We forget that he still is chairman of uh, Tesla. We, we spend so much time focused on his interest in Twitter. So all of a sudden, it looks as though, you know, the economic dimension of this relationship is back at the center of China's attention. Talk to me about that economic relationship, the damage that was done to it, I guess continues to be done with the the 2018 Trump sanctions, which have been continued by Biden. Then let's talk about the additional kind of constraints that are being put on future investment in China. But, But talk to me about where we stand, where we've gotten to in our relationship, our business investment and economic relationship with China, because it's enormous couple of big picture things. You know, the emergence of China has come at the same time, or the emergence of, of China as an economic powerhouse has come at the same time that we've witnessed the globalization of the world economy 
and the globalization of financial markets. China is integral to the global economy, and thus its, its exports have been a, a central driver of a lot of the prosperity that we were seeing emerge in the emerging markets and developing countries in the pre-pandemic era. The U.S. and China are inextricably tied together through this. Mm-hmm. There, there is no breaking, you know, decoupling is the term that's used. There's, there's no separation of two economies that can take place without doing you know, drastic damage to the world economy and to financial markets. On the other hand, you, you mentioned the Chinese juggernaut in your, in your introduction. It's a pretty tarnished juggernaut at the moment. And that's because of more than anything else, it's because of bad mistakes that Xi Jinping and the people around him have made. Mm-hmm. Uh, economic policy errors, some they inherited from earlier you know, in this century, others that are, you know, should be fully laid in their laps. A couple of things. The Chinese economy was hit hard by zero COVID policy that Xi Jinping insisted upon. And it had, since that was lifted at the end of last year, it has failed to rebound as many people thought it would. His crackdown on the commerce internet companies I mentioned has really damaged corporate confidence, undercut fixed capital investment in China. China has put vast amounts of investment into infrastructure development, but you can just build so many high-speed rail lines mm-hmm. and coal-fired power plants and and highways before that you know the that money does not have an impact on the economy and finally you know all of this spending that they've done all of this stimulating of the economy has fed into a massive property bubble that has burst in the last couple of years you can't simply build more apartments anymore and expect the economy to keep growing so suddenly china as powerful as it is as hubristic as its its government presents itself on a daily basis needs the world needs foreigners in a way that even two years ago we almost couldn't have imagined now, the U.S., I think, understands this, and the U.S. has been deeply concerned about very specific issues. You mentioned the Trump-era tariffs. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much damage they've done, and I think you know that probably is part of what's seen in the, the rapid increase in the value of Chinese exports because there's tariffs being added on to that. I think that the other policies that Trump introduced were more significant, which was targeting the transfer of technology, targeting the financing of technological development by American and other foreign capital. All of this is something the Biden administration has taken, has carried forward, has expanded. Mm -hmm. And I think that combination of suddenly realizing that doors are closing to them when they need them open and the severe domestic economic problems means that China suddenly Uh, has a greater need for foreigners than it thought. I think China also is bringing the Jamie Dimons and the Elon Musks to to Beijing, sort of using a playbook that maybe was more effective 10, 20, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. where they would bring capitalists of fame into Beijing and, and fed them and they would come back and say, no, we have to work with China. We have, we have to you know, be prepared to accept China with open arms. And 
I think that that's not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. I think the voices of American business on China have been muted in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in many different ways. I think that they do not have the lobbying power they once did. And I think they're worried about see, appearing too pro-China for fear of the political backlash that they face mm-hmm. in this country. Now, you talked about doors closing to China. At the G7 meeting in Hiroshima last month, we heard discussion of de-risking, decoupling. What is the difference between de-risking decoupling. I mean, de-risking, obviously, that's to reduce risk in the financial sphere, I guess. But some talk about decoupling. Give us a definition of the two words and also just give us a sense of where the U.S. and its allies stand in terms of are we simply de-risking? Are there elements of decoupling? Where do we stand with this de-this and (laughs) de-that? De-risking is sort of the fig leaf on decoupling, I guess you could say. It, it, these are rhetorical terms. I mean, the, the impulse is to pull away from China because of all of the issues that have emerged, the concern that China is becoming a threat economically, militarily, politically. Decoupling itself has sort of been, been a term employed by those who are most critical of China which would be a real break in economic relations, a severing of ties across various fronts, a breaking of supply chains that have built up over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. I think there's been something of a backlash. The Europeans were deeply concerned about this talk. The Japanese are certainly, the the Koreans are. But there's also an understanding that things cannot go on the way they, they have. So in March... Ursula von der Leyen, the, 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 the president of the European community, introduced the term de-risking in a speech. And she said, it's not viable to decouple from China. We need to focus on de-risking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a week or so later, Jake Sullivan, the President Biden's national security advisor, endorsed that terminology. And I think what the difference is really where you find the meaning. De-risking is essentially saying we're going to focus on the economic ties that have national security implications for us, the US, Europe, the West. We, are, we have to focus in on what we are providing to China that increases the threat China poses to our economies or our security. This can involve the sale of technology, particularly the most advanced semiconductors Mm -hmm. that can be used for military purposes, both in weapons and, let's say, in artificial intelligence applications. It involves the flow of capital to Chinese startups that are engaging in sensitive research in electronics in other areas. And it can involve the exposure of, of Western economies to specific exports that China dominates in through supply chains or supply chains that are crucial, should we say, links 
pass through uh, China and Chinese manufacturing. So, for example, we're we can be talking about the batteries for electric vehicles. We could be talking about the precursor chemicals put, that are used in medicine, something that became much more of an issue during COVID. It can involve the chips that China is making itself or that China is assembling that are coming from Taiwan, for example, which dominates the, uh, the world's manufacture of advanced, advanced semiconductors. So it's all of these things that have taken on a national security, where we've seen national security ramifications emerge that are now under the microscope in Washington, in Brussels, in Tokyo, in Seoul. And I think that de-risking is essentially separating the wheat from the chaff from, you know, let's sever everything of decoupling to let's focus on the things that will matter the most to us. Now, whether that's acceptable to China is another issue. The Chinese seem very concerned about the de-risking. They've been criticizing it as just another way of saying decoupling. And interestingly, the, the foreign minister uh, last week, a meeting with European CEOs, said de-risking should be carried out by CEOs and not by governments, hmm. which is a fascinating thing because <laughs> what's happening is that CEOs are making their own decisions about de-risking now, both in terms of what they're manufacturing in China and what they want to manufacture outside of China, and very importantly, the kinds of investments that are being made in stocks and bonds in China. Let's come back to that point about the CEO should be making these decisions about de-risking, and specifically in the area of semiconductors. Now, the United States has been encouraging and subsidizing, I guess, the relocation of new semiconductor plants back on shore in the United States. We saw a recent announcement of an $800 million investment by Micron in a semiconductor plant in India. We also saw the United States leaning very heavily on the Netherlands and Japan, who are two major advanced semiconductor manufacturers, leaning on them to get in line with the de-risking of exposing semiconductor technology, advanced semiconductor technology to Chinese industry. Talk to me about that. I mean, it, it seems as though the U.S. government and governments in Europe are the ones who are who are making these strategic decisions in terms of onshoring semiconductor companies back into the, the U.S. or friend-shoring. Has the Chinese foreign minister missed the boat on that one? It seems as though the governments are, uh, rather than the CEOs, are calling the shots, at least as regards relocation of semiconductor investments. Well, I think that there's there are very strong inducements to do this. So, and I think on semiconductors, governments have been in the lead. And the most important step by the U.S. has been the Chips and Science Act, which is uh, providing subsidies for the construction of huge advanced semiconductor fabs right now in Phoenix in the Austin, Texas area. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation is building two fabs in Phoenix. And, mm. you know, we're talking each one is probably on the order of 12 to $15 billion of investment. Samsung has plan is building more and his plans to build several fabs in Texas. Intel is getting money from the U.S. government. So all of this, in, in fact, really um, dwarves you know, Micron Tech 
might be doing in India. But your point is exactly well taken. And I think in terms of China, this sudden turn, shall we say, towards industrial policy by the Biden administration, I think has shaken China. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were expecting this. They saw the U.S. as exposed to its dependence on Taiwan, its dependence on South Korea, and its growing dependence on China for the manufacture of semiconductors, and didn't, I think, didn't expect the U.S. to turn, make such a hard turn towards major investments. Uh, the problem is that the, the semiconductor supply chain in this world, or I should say the semiconductor supply chains, are some of the most complex multinational supply chains that exist. I mean, you know, the manufacture of advanced chips you know, is based in East Asia, but it is part of a chain of supply that extends around the world from, as you mentioned, Dutch chip making gear to advanced chemicals made in Japan mm-hmm. to any um, designs made by by US companies it goes on and on but China is a big part of that China is the largest assembler of chips after they've been fabricated for example so it's not easy for the US to simply say okay we're going to friend shore we're going to invest, we're going to pull back from East Asia to the extent we can to protect ourselves when all of these supply chains have just, you know, have deep roots throughout the world, including in China. And to too suddenly pull on that, those roots would potentially cause real severe problems for the semiconductor industry, which whatever the state of the you know the cyclical downturn that we're not that they're now experiencing you know its prospects are to grow and grow and grow in the coming years and you can't simply say now we're going to change all that too suddenly without causing real disruption so there's i think you know there's real reason to see the us is making an important take undertaking an important initiative but there's also reason to see that you can't simply you know stop what people have been doing for 30 years mm-hmm. which involves beijing as well let's move on to the flow of capital of course you worked with the imf and china of course saw vast inflows of foreign capital from europe from the united states from investors in in both of those geographies over the years. We now see the Biden administration trying to close that spigot. I wouldn't say close the spigot, but certainly tighten it somewhat. I was uh, very surprised to see in the last, last month or two that the premier venture capital firm here in the Bay Area, Sequoia Capital, which of course funds early stage technology companies both onshore here in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, and also overseas, that Sequoia Capital was in fact going to break itself up into three different entities. One entity that would focus offshore purely on Chinese investment and be located in Asia. Another would be focused solely on U.S. technology investments and focused here in the Bay Area in the United States. And then finally, a third part of Sequoia Capital would focus on Indian investment. I saw that as a very significant change in terms of the flow of capital to sensitive, high-tech, early-stage investment, which the world looks to the United States to provide. Sequoia has provided it. 
And as a result of this breakup of Sequoia, is that a going to make it even harder for China to get the kind of venture capital financing for its early high-tech startup companies than it was before? All the talk of de-risking manufacturing is fine, but it's not simple to, to, to simply say, uh, I'm going to close my factory in China and open up in, in Mexico or India or Indonesia, because the supply chains are embedded. It takes a long time mm-hmm. to move things, to change things. Capital movement is something else. There is a, There are spigots that can be turned on and off, but I think it's basically more than anything else by investors and not by governments. And we've seen already a significant flow, a very significant flow out of China as institutional investors have undertaken their own de-risking because of concerns about the Chinese economy, because of concerns about U.S.-China relations, et cetera, all the reasons I was talking about before. There's been something on the order of $150 billion of Chinese bonds that have been sold by foreign investors in the last less than two years, money that's moved out of China. There's been a sharp decline in the share prices of Chinese stock listed on Wall Street, listed in Hong Kong, and many of the ones listed in China because institutional investors are very concerned. Venture capital is sort of the third leg of that stool. You know, you got bonds, mm-hmm. you got stocks, but then you've got venture capital, which is, as you said, that early stage investment. And I would add to that private equity flows as well, when, you know, sort of that past the venture capital stage, but pre-initial public offering IPO. What you're talking about is a perfect example of how this world has changed. Venture capital 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was encouraged. It was seen as mm-hmm. a way to get in the door early in China, to help guide the development of industries in China, to benefit, to profit to tie China more to to the U.S. and other countries and potentially to gain technological breakthroughs going forward. But now that the focus is on national security, on the fact that China has developed some cutting edge technology can be u- ha- that has dual use military and civilian suddenly the world of washington looks very differently at venture capital they're seeing that there is not nearly enough that's known about it there's mm-hmm. not enough data uh, that people are aware a colleague of mine uh, Sarah Dansman has done a lot of work in this area, for example. But there also is a deep concern that, you know, the pursuit of the almighty buck might perhaps be blinding some investors mm-hmm. to the underlying issues that now present themselves to policymakers. So I think what you are seeing is with Sequoia is them getting out ahead of what's coming, which is there's going to be an executive order from the Biden administration that in some fashion will be, shall we say, at least if not turning off the spigot, at least putting a hand on the spigot that has never been there before in Washington, Mm -hmm. right? Basically reviewing sensitive investments and saying, yes, no, we don't quite know yet what they're going to do. But clearly this stage of investment is now going to face scrutiny. It never has. And look, there has been a tremendous amount of change already in venture capital business. You know, a, a lot more of the money going into sensitive areas like semiconductors in China in the last two years has come from 
the affiliates of Silicon Valley uh, venture capital firms and not from the Silicon Valley firms themselves. So Sequoia's China branch has, you know, sort of, you know, reached the point that it's it's almost or maybe larger than the parent. And a lot of the money that has been flowing from the U.S. has been flowing through the affiliate and not through the U.S. You know, headquarters. Now, how that will work out, whether the, for example, Sequoia's partners will be allowed to make those investments in, through the China affiliate, who knows? And they may not be able to. Right. Right. But but it's very clear that Sequoia was reading the writing on the wall in what it announced. Mm -hmm. Let's come back to the sharing of information between the United States and China in particular. When Nancy Pelosi made her trip to Taiwan last year, China suspended, I believe, contacts between senior military officers in the People's Liberation Army and their counterparts at the Department of Defense in the United States. And then secondly, we've also seen Chinese Ministry of Finance officials discourage Chinese companies from going IPO in U.S. markets because they feel that these Chinese companies, if they do IPO in U.S. markets, they're going to have to share too much information, what they term as sensitive information, with U.S. regulators and U.S. investors. Talk to me about that chilling of sharing information both on the military side, which is kind of chilling when you think that China is growing its, its, its nuclear forces, as well as forcing Chinese companies to delist on the New York Stock Exchange, for instance. I'm not a, a specialist in the military side of things, and so I don't want to go too far into it. But let, what I would say is this, that sort of, quote unquote, traditionally, military to military interactions have been always been the first things to suffer in moments of tension between the U.S. and China. And it's always China breaks these interactions off. A lot of this has to do with their anger over, over U.S. planes monitoring communications from international airspace. It's, it's anger over U.S. naval vessels uh, transiting the, the Taiwan Strait, which is international waters. But let's leave that there. I think the other area you're getting into is, is extremely important. You know, early on in, in our conversation, I talked about paranoia. This is exactly where the paranoia is emerging in China in economic relations. China has introduced a series of regulations and laws that govern the use of data, the transfer of data, uh, both inside China, given vast amounts of online data that now exists in the hands of private companies and also out of China. There is this paranoia that somehow deep, dark secret will be revealed if a company has to present the SEC with its audited account books. Uh, companies that want to do IPOs now have to leap over hurdle after hurdle after hurdle to demonstrate to powers that be in Beijing that they are not providing sensitive data to the outside world. All of this really adds up to a tightening down of everything in the economic relations that have been had become day-to-day -day and matter-of-fact in recent years. IPOs are certainly one victim, but at the end of the day, that just means that, that at a time of economic crisis in China, there's going to be fewer and fewer avenues for companies, particularly private companies, to gain access to capital that they need. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what kind of relationship, if you had a crystal ball, what kind of relationship do you foresee 
what kind of an economic relationship, investment relationship, credit relationship do you see two to three years hence between the United States and China and the United States and Europe and China? What kind, what do you foresee? What do you think will be two to three years from now? You know, some of this is hard to say, but I think a lot is going to come down to the degree to which the two leaders, President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, are able to establish some sort of understanding about how the two countries can or should get along. You know, they started this at the end of last year when they met in Bali, and they're supposed to meet later this year in the U.S. when the, the United States hosts the APEX summit. In between, things have gotten much worse, largely because of the balloon incident uh, earlier this year when you know that Chinese uh, surveillance balloon suddenly drifted over sensitive military sites uh, in the U.S. and was eventually shot down off South Carolina. Things have got, gotten much worse. But the two leaders are in a position to, the, the cliche is, to put a floor under the relationship or establish guardrails, whatever you want to say. But unless they can come to some kind of understanding, I think two to three years from now, it's going to be worse, the economic relationship. I think there will be more restrictions imposed by one side or the other on you know these sensitive areas. It's be, we're already seeing it become a bit of a tit-for-tat a process where Micron Tech has been has been sanctioned in China because of of U.S. Uh, restrictions on semiconductor sales. The Chinese announced the other day they're going to they're going to slow down, license the export of, of specialized metals like gallium, which are used in semiconductors. I think there's going to be more of that. I think there will be more restrictions on capital flows and data flows, and I, I certainly nothing will change before the 2024 election. And there's too many uncertainties to predict where that's going to go and what the implications might be for U.S.-China relations. But I see no reason for optimism about, about for improvement in U.S.-China economic ties. And Jeremy, how can our listeners follow you? Jim, I can be followed on Twitter. My Twitter handle is jedmark888. That's J-E-D-M-A-R-K-888. And I'm on LinkedIn, Jeremy Mark, and always happy to broaden the network. The rest of them, the day is too short to get involved in <laughs> Instagram and everything else. I know one of your other, your other recent guests said the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just life's too short. <laughs> and tell me, upcoming studies, because you publish frequently on the Atlantic Council website, any coming attractions of studies that you, you'll be publishing in the next quarter or two? I've done a lot of work on Chinese lending to developing countries and the issue of debt restructuring. And a colleague, a former colleague from the IMF, Lasuki Shastri, and I write regularly on it. We're doing a piece right now that we hope to, to, to publish later in the month. And I'm looking ahead, actually, to the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank in Marrakesh in October. That'll be the, the first overseas meetings that they've held since the pandemic hit. And I put aside my aversion to participating in IMF-related events after so many years I'm going to be going to to sort of gauge gauge the waters on the kinds of issues that, that you and I have been talking about and I'm sure we'll be writing as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeremy, 
I want to thank you for joining us today for a very wide-ranging, very informative conversation today about China, the United States, our economic relations, where we have come from, where we are right now, and pulling the curtain back a little bit to give us a sense of where we may be headed. Again, thank you so much for your time today. What is the website for the Atlantic Council for any of our listeners who might want to visit the, uh, the website? www.atlanticcouncil.org. Very good. Again, Jeremy, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Jim. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 422. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total, and join our listener base that spans 65 countries. You may be aware that the San Francisco Experience podcast was recently named one of the top 25 news podcasts in California by Feedspot. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. (music) 